Welcome to the More Than a Game, a story about football and other stuff podcast. It is the aim of this series of podcasts to discuss the, some of the experiences of amateur black footballers who simply played for the joy of it, but who had to endure the worst kind of abuse that went mostly unnoticed and unreported. The conversations are intended to be wide-ranging, thought-provoking, and entertaining as an attempt to find out just how did the cancer called racism infect the beautiful game? Has it developed from within, or is it what is happening in the football merely a reflection of what goes on in society? To get the conversation going, I'm delighted to have the author Ralph Robb, as well as music promoter, documentary researcher, and one-time football player Steve Byfield with me today. Ralph Robb wrote the novel More Than a Game, a story about football and other stuff, in 2006. The story is set in 1981 at a time of great social upheaval in Britain, in the industrial town of Wolverhampton, the destination of my grandparents who had immigrated from Jamaica in the 1960s and where Ralph was born and brought up. More Than a Game attracted some very positive reviews and was described by one as an enjoyable and eye-opening slice of 1980s life, politics, and people. Joining us today, we have Ralph and Steve as usual, but we also have Don, the publisher of More Than a Game, here with us today. Don, why don't you do a brief introduction just to let the listeners know who you are and what it is you do. Hello. Well, about 2005, I was publishing two books. Uh, the original intention was to publish one book, and that was Ralph's Rob autobiographical memoirs of a crazy fighter. But there was so much good stuff in it, uh, regarding his background and growing up in Wolverhampton, uh, that I thought it could be two books. And the second book became more than a game, a story of football and other stuff. And that was published back in 2006. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was some frustration to me that he didn't find a big publisher to publish that book and also memoirs of a crazy fighter i thought there were not only an interesting insight but they, there were two great stories there mm -hmm. so um because i also grew up in wolverhampton i had uh, an inkling about the time and place ralph was talking about and i was only too happy to take it on and obviously like a lot, I'm sure a lot of people who published uh, unknown authors or new authors, uh, the frustrating thing for a publisher is often it gets great reviews mm -hmm. and they are not necessarily reflected in sales. And of course, this was the time before Amazon and the internet sales, so it was a lot of hard slug. Uh, so, memoirs made us some money, I'm glad to say. Uh, the more than a game book. Uh, was taken on by uh, several um, anti-racist groups who were using sport to spread the message of anti-racism. And they took that on. I can't remember their actual names now. I think one was Kick It Out. And uh, so it was gratifying in that way. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, well, for those people who have ever watched This Is England, that uh, well-known series on Channel 4 and a series about what it was like for white working class kids growing up around about the same time in the early 80s. This was almost a parallel story. And a lot of people weren't aware 
of things like uh, blues parties and uh, revelry and all that sort of thing that used to go on, it would be completely unknown because back though, 40 years ago, there's almost, uh, I wouldn't call it apartheid because it wasn't codified, but certainly uh, we were aware that, um, as Ralph has referred to, areas of Wolverhampton where there were very few white people. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was also the reverse, there were very few black people in, in where I grew up. And so there's almost a separate development. And I thought this would be an interesting sort of book to let people know what was going on in their town. So uh, the football story, of course, is a novel, and but it's based a lot on characters that uh, were around at the time. and events there were some real events and of course some ones he made up but i thought they told an important story about people who were struggling and what divides us in the end as john hume says is accidents of birth and who who is ever been chosen whoever chooses to be the color they are or to be born to the parents they are or were born in a certain country or whatever these are all accidents and yet people take them, oh, I'm proud to be British, or I'm proud to be Chinese. Or, well, you had no choice in it for a lot of it. Mm-hmm. I'm proud to be black, I'm proud to be white. What does that mean? That's a good point. And we think... And, uh, so I thought there was uh, important messages in his book because I, I could see it's not, it's not pushing one side or another. Uh, you referred to in the last uh, podcast episode about um, an argument between a, within a family about... Uh, black players representing England and how they were viewed. And I thought that portrayed very well. It, there's no sort of homogeneous mass on any side. And uh, so I'm always a little bit uncomfortable referring to black people or white people. I used to say, well, what black people are you talking about exactly or what white people are you, are you referring to? And I, I just try and... Um, that's why I thought it was an important book for people to read. And certainly the response I got as a publisher and the uh, letters I got back from people who read it, including people like um, Benjamin Zephaniah, who really loved the book. He thought it was a very, and Ralph was an important writer, I think he said at the time, and should should do more. I think a lot of people read it, said, yeah, this should be well read. But unfortunately, I think when people see an anti-racist message these days, it's portrayed in some places as anti-white or anti-section of a community. Mm-hmm. Well, anti-racism mm-hmm. is anti-an idea. It's anti-a notion. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think um, this was the important thing about the book. It's that nobody was ever, there's not a particular blame culture going on. They're saying this is how it is. And what I liked about the particular style of writing, it's lighthearted. And it refers to things like people just having a good time. And some people are not very nice characters, and some people are very good characters. And I think that reflects life. And I think that's why it was an important book for me to publish, and I'm glad I did. And um, since then, it's been republished again, not by my good self, but I'm glad to see it, and I hope it does well. Perfect. Thank you for that introduction. Uh, I'm happy to have you here. I think we all are. And today we're going to be focusing on a bit of a lighter theme. We'll be covering the Brethren, the Compatriot, the Spar. 
Uh, plain and simple, for those who, like me, had no idea what those words meant, we're going to be talking about who and where you were hanging out for entertainment back then, back in the 80s. So I'm going to start off by reading a short excerpt from the book, More Than a Game, and then we'll get your take on it. On the way home after Mark's first club outing to the Nottingham tournament, Cecil Grant, who was driving the minibus, had said they would head for a blues party. Mark had thought he was joking when Cecil suggested continuing the celebrations. After all, the sun was up and he figured most people would have gone home to bed. But sure enough, in the blacked out city room of a large Edwardian house, bodies had still been gyrating to the base, thudding from the biggest speakers he'd ever seen. The minister had said the devil had all the best tunes. Man, this music stirred something deep within him. He'd never know heard anything like it. His mother would not even let Desmond Decker play in the house, as she reckoned he did indecent things with his lips as he sang about the Israelites. And as his eyes had adjusted to the darkness and smoke, he had seen girls dancing as though they were making babies, or at least practicing. One of them had looked over the shoulder of the guy she was dancing with. Although he hadn't been able to see her face, he'd known by her eyes that she must be beautiful. So let me start off by uh, saying that this book seems pretty quite adequately explained exactly what a blues party. It's grungy. It seems like it's dark. It's just everybody having a great time. So I'll turn it over to you, Steve, first as our mixologist of the place of music. Um, did you ever hang out in these kinds of places and what was it like for you? Oh, yes. I mean, I was uh, grown. I grew up in the blues. I think I went to my first blues when I must have been 12 or 13. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> and being a, being a Londoner, I, I, was, uh, I had a choice of some of some legendary blues party, which is, uh, which is uh, an illegal party, okay? Uh, sometimes known as a Shubia. Yeah. Uh, in Brixton, I used to go to Frontline International. I used to go over to Hackney, to the Candy Box. Um, in Leeds, we used to have Cliffs Blues, Cowboy, Leon. I, I went to all of them, DJed in quite a few. Mm -hmm. And the blues party really was something that originated, this is, this is my, my understanding, it's something that originated because in the 70s and possibly earlier, pubs were dangerous places for black people. Mm -hmm. Unless you went to the Atlantic or a pub like that, Atlantic was a pub in Brixton. Um, Pubs were just too dangerous. Mm -hmm. And there's something about black audiences that I've noticed over the years. Black people don't come out till late. So you know, pub, pub, pubs usually close at 11, but I've promoted so many events over the years and it's almost impossible to get a black audience into the session before at least 11, 12 o'clock. I remember people when I went to my first blues party, I was about... 16, 17, okay? And it was something you always looked forward to on a Friday evening, because it was, oh, sorry, Friday night or a Saturday night, okay? okay. Yes. Now, the point of say it, it, it originated from the old Shabines, which uh, I do believe is an Irish term. I'm not 100% sure. But it basically, what the Shabine is, was an explicit or illegal uh, bar or club where alcohol was sold uh, without, without taxation, okay? Mm -hmm. I'll think back to that, it being called the Shabine, okay? All the blues clubs I went to, 
I can't remember alcohol being sold, but I remember a heap shitload of weed being smoked. I can believe it. <laughs> yeah, you didn't, you didn't need to buy it. You just walk into the place, right, and just breathe. Yeah. Just breathe. I even remember one, right? It was held in uh, off Lee Road, which is an area in Wolverhampton. It was held in an old church hall of all places. As you walked through the door, there was guys holding uh, big plastic bags with pre-rolled spliffs in there. So you could actually buy your weed as you walked into the, uh, into the blues. It oh, sounds yes. convenient to me. I remember the guy standing on the door with his newspaper under his arm, usually. Yeah. And as you walked in, he would just ask you straight, you want it? Yeah. And, you know, he wasn't talking about the old album, Reggie. Yeah. It's funny, it's funny isn't, it, isn't it, that the, uh, the Blues Party only partially came about because they established nightclubs. There's no way he's a black guy. They let you in at that time. Well, that, that was there were a lot of black girls in. There were a lot of black girls in, but there were not a lot of black guys in. So you have same in the West End of London now, in certain clubs. So it's still like that today, you're saying, still. in some places. There's been lots of issues recently over that. Okay. You see, we knew this. We knew this. We used to, the only club that I used to go to as a young man in London was a club on Carnaby Street called Colombo's, where uh, Sir Cox and Sound System used to play. Yeah. That was the only club in the West End that I could go out. In those days, we used to dress up to go out. I used to wear a lot of gold and stuff, and that all came out at the weekend. Yeah. Uh, I was selling menswear at 16, so I always had a, a large range of suits. Yeah. And uh, Colombo's was the only place that you could go and be guaranteed to get in. Interesting. Uh, now, in, in the blues, the other thing is, is that usually sound systems in there, so you're hearing the kind of music that they, that in the 70s and 80s, you just didn't hear when you went out to a club. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm not really, I, I was a reggae man when I was growing up. I didn't really want to hear any rock music or or, or soul music. I, I just wasn't into that. So if you were into reggae music, you had to go to a blues. Young black guys at the time were into reggae music and they did not, and it's funny, they didn't come from households that would actually be playing that type of reggae music either. No, no, it's a, it's a rebellious thing. It's yeah. it definitely a very rebellious thing to go to blues yeah. parties. Because my, my, my dad knew I was going there at such an early age. He would put a stop to it. Sounds like a generational thing. No. Because, put it this way, Sunday morning, right, they used to play uh, country music in the house, believe it or not. Country music. There was a black country music uh, star called something, Pre what's his name? Anyway, my mom, had, my mom had this album, and that was the only kind of, uh, that as far or as rebellious she would go in regards to playing music on a Sunday morning. That's funny. I, I was no. surprised to hear so much country music in Jamaica. Seriously? Yeah, I, I've even been to clubs in Jamaica where, they, where they've got old jukeboxes. The club is locked into the 70s. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, they're playing, and they're playing country music. Yeah. John, I'm interested. What was your take on these blues parties? Did you ever uh, attend any? Yeah, um, only a handful. I, I don't think, it, when I say a handful, they happened to be uh, people I knew. First up, I was a very innocent Irish lad. And 
I really didn't know many black people because the area I grew up in, but I, I turned out, I joined the karate club. I was 17. And up until then, I, I, I really didn't associate with any black people. I didn't know anything much except, you know, about uh, Jamaicans and Prince Buster, I think was one of the records I heard at school. Mm -hmm. Don't call me Scarface. That was about oh, yeah. it. Yeah, and uh, so uh, I, I joined a karate club, and uh, they were all Jamaican, actually. I think, and um, so I, I gradually got introduced to a wider social circle. And uh, but I was a very good Catholic boy. I used to go to mass every Sunday, mm -hmm. and um, so the, the the idea that you go out to um, a party on Saturday, and you would still miss ten o'clock mass on the Sunday seemed bizarre maybe i say <laughs> even sinful <laughs> who the hell would be staying out that time of day yeah. you know uh actually i got back for eight o'clock yeah. in the morning um yeah so it was a a bit of an experience for me uh, but i didn't really feel um anything but deafness because they were the biggest speaker boxes <laughs> i'd ever seen in my head. And I, it, it, it did take me several days to recover my hearing. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, outside, I remember there used to be street vendors sometimes selling curry goat. If they knew there was a blues going on, they'd park somewhere not that far away. So you could go and get a, a patty or a, a curry goat or something like that. So in that way, I then gone, grew to like, you know, Caribbean food. Mm -hmm. I used to, and, um, but I suppose to me, it was... A little bit unusual because the lights weren't on, so you had to kind of feel your way around. Now, that's got to be a lure, <laughs> I'm assuming. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for some, I'd imagine it was, but um, I, I, I kind of did respond to uh, the Mark Bedford character in the book because, rather like him, I was a church going lad, and I thought, what the heck are these people doing? Mm -hmm. I know they've got clothes on, but is that really what they're doing? <laughs> so I found it I found it in a way intoxicating mostly because of the ganja smoke I didn't yep. smoke either and um, but like I say I, I mostly went there with friends of mine so I always felt secure I had never any in fact I never saw any trouble uh, at a blues unlike you could go to some nightclubs in the town and it was almost guaranteed trouble at some guaranteed time at night guaranteed fights uh, and so maybe it was just the, and I didn't go to that many blues, but that, it tended to be a more peaceful place. But I think it's, um, I think it's in either Ralph's karate book or the football novel where he mentions about people smoking spiffs are far more peaceable than guys drinking alcohol, you know, and probably that was it. by the time I got there, everybody was very mellow. Mm -hmm. yeah. so, so here's so, a question for all three of you, and it doesn't matter who answers. Being a white man in a very black predominant area, like in one of these parties, did you find there was trouble or is it just you were who you were there and you were open and it was welcoming? I've worked on the doors of many blues and run a few myself. I remember being in a blues party where when the fight started, one guy was trying to cut another guy with a knife. And you mentioned the, the, the volume of the music. I, I know that it's possible to hear a knife 
go through the air and you can hear it over the music yeah. and because everything in down there is so crowded everybody tries to go to the door but they, you can't get out the door because it's a bottleneck and and it's, i've been in some of the the worst situations in a blues party and it's probably best not to mention it i've seen a few disagreements in blues parties as well uh, especially when you've got one sound system playing against another sound system and then i don't know yeah. for whatever reasons the machettes were drawn okay yeah. but i think it was at that particular time i think it was more bluster than anything else and thank god it calmed down because yeah. i was sure there's going to be blood it could be a bloodbath at that time but as i said right it was it one easily happen against another sound system and whatever happened i don't know but they everything just went up in the book it progressed from the blues party right to the uh to the star and moon or moon and star club which is actually based on an actual nightclub in Wolverhampton or one of these small towns associated with Wolverhampton called Bilston. And the club was actually called Rising Star. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now then once that kicked up, once that started, it tended to attract a few more, let's say more respect, respectable people from the black community into it. And I remember on one occasion, right, I actually met Cyril Regis in that club. Okay. At the time, I was helping a cousin of mine on the doors, so I'd have been a bit older than the early days of the blues. And you know, when you can see a bit of a couple, not a couple, but a commotion and going on, somebody who is well known is walking to the club, etc., etc. And he walked past. I recognised who it was. At first, I didn't recognise it because I thought he was he was some he was some sort of a boxer because he had that build. Yeah, he did, yeah. And then I had some other people, I was asking, aren't you going to, why didn't I get his, uh, his autograph? I thought, what the fuck do I get another man's autograph for, you know? And yeah. what he's doing, he was this man? Yeah, we're not interested in that. We just let him live, you know, move as he wants. He was a footballer at the time, a black yeah. player. Uh, played for one of the regional clubs, West Bromley, at mm -hmm. the time. Uh, he did he go to play for England as well? I think, I think so. Civil he got one or two caps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that for was, sure. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, I'd gone to the same nightclub only because I could get in for free because you and the guys from the karate club were doing the door. So anywhere I could get in for free, I, I went in. Yeah, but me I, too. I, I mean, Kim, Kim said, they, you know, as a, maybe sometimes the only white person there. And it's difficult to say because he's looking back over 40 years but of course I was going with my mates mm -hmm. now if I, I if I hadn't been with my friend I certainly wouldn't have gone to a blues today knowing anybody but I don't, no, I don't think you, that was a, that was a advisable no I, but if my friends were doing the door or they invited me to come along because somebody's birthday or whatever I just go along but you know to be quite honest I never ever, I only once ever saw the morning, the morning light leaving. Yeah. Because yeah. I'd fall asleep. I was just with, I was just with May before. Yeah. <laughs> so, I've come out of plenty of blues, blues at 10 o'clock in the morning and gone straight to football. Oh, my God. Oh, uh, well, I've like come straight out of these blues and gone straight to work. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> me too, yeah. Well, well I was going to say, you're sounding like me, Steve. I, I would come out of the blues at 10 o'clock, but it was yeah. just starting at 10. But I'd, I'd probably be <laughs> around midnight. That would be me. I'd, yeah. I'd feel as though my car was going to change into a pumpkin or something. So <laughs> I'd, I'd be gone. Yeah. But I, and I suppose that that was the thing is that um, I, I did occasionally 
and the occasions I went. And I did hear of trouble at the Blues. It's just I didn't actually um, witness any myself. And there was no trouble or any antagonism towards me, if that's what you were asking about. Yes, that was what I was uh, They could be and, dangerous uh, places, man. Petrol bomb the door. Oh, yeah. You know, fumes and flames that, that flying actually yeah that, that happened in birmingham i mean it was a uh, that's one of the reasons they don't go on anymore you know yeah and who but, was doing uh, that to them just i mean in leeds there used to be these you'd let the youths into the blues mm -hmm. and then you know what would happen is a woman would put her bag down to have a dance and the youths are there to to steal and cause trouble mm -hmm. so what you'd have to do is is certain youths can't come in and then they would petrol bomb the you know where i used to live on spencer place in in leeds when i you know i i, I there were three blues basically one right next door and two either side of that when they came to bust cliff's blues which was one of the most famous it's the only time i've ever seen in my back lane about 200 police marching like soldiers with a senior policeman with a cap on at the front, barking orders in military style. And they came and busted the blues, took away the whole sound system. And that was the end of the blues in Leeds, as far as I know it. Let's move us on to the next thing, which a lot of which I in particular used to spend a lot of my time. And that's the old movie theaters watching Kung Fu movies. Now, yes. that's it. I didn't mention this book, but I regret it at times because I had some fantastic stories which, which could have gone into this book regarding my time spent at night again, never in the day, at night, watching yeah. old Kung Fu movies. 24-hour Kung Fu films. Yeah, put on these oh, dilapidated buildings, rat-infested buildings, yeah. weed throughout the building. So why, why was it black people so into kung fu movies? Because in my head, that just seems a little odd. Well. <laughs> like, it, it's like two very different people, right? Once, see, it's Bruce Lee. Younger people, not, the, not so much the older generation, like my father, no. Mm -hmm. But in my generation, yes. Bruce Lee came along, mm -hmm. and he was, he, he used to deal with the theme of, of, racism in his films and that connected with me a lot mm. you know there's a famous there's a famous line in uh, fist of fury i think it is where he tells the samurai you know we are no longer the sick man of asia yeah yeah and uh, just and just that he was dealing with that issue and funny enough, all right? the rebels all of us rebels you know we just yeah. yes, connected rules, you know yeah. yes and Dictatorship, yeah. always the Japanese, the enemy, the hard yes. enemy. Well, with he was their, resisting, their, and I was with, with him. I, you know. basic karate yeah. against the yeah. more flowing poor man's kung fu. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I watched them all. I used to go to Peckhamodian. We yeah. used to come outside, and there would be a fight involving 50, 60 people outside. Yeah. By the time, <laughs> by the time I was 14, I was I coming close to my Come out uh, and try and practice what they're Yes, I'd be mawashi I'd be people in the face. Yeah. And, and some, some, of, some of the fights got real as well. Yeah, I remember hearing a story from uh, Ken Dix. Can you know? Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah, I've heard Daniel Kendrick's well. Yeah. He tell us a story yeah. about a similar kung fu movie. I don't know if it was one of these late night affair things, okay? But there's this dude, right? Outside, foggy, everything, two, pe two, two bricks, piece of wood across, okay? <laughs> He's attempted to break the wood with his frigging head, which he did do on the second attempt and knocked himself out on the concrete just wow. below the wood. Hey. <laughs> went straight through. Went straight through and bust his head on the concrete floor. Not advisable. Kim, this sounds crazy to you, right? But I guarantee you, guys who are going to the Kung Fu movies, right? Dressed mm -hmm. as Bruce Lee, just in these Chinese outfits. I saw them, man. Huh? Yeah. yeah, I saw them. I didn't go so far, but I saw them. I saw yeah. it. It sounds crazy, <laughs> but, but at the same time, it doesn't because you see all these cosplay and people dressing up as their favorite superheroes. So that's how I picture yeah. it like that. <laughs> One of the funniest things, let me just say this for the first time. One of the funniest things, sometimes more interesting than the movie, was, this, was listening to the commentary. Yeah. The oh, yes. I've yeah. seen guys march up and down the aisle. Fixed, you know, because yeah. Bruce Lee would lick back the guy. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess some of the Bruce Lee the face and gave you the cheek. I've seen guy marching up and down the aisle, yeah. shouting, "Lick him, Bruce! Lick him!" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I loved it. Over the next few weeks, we'll be covering a wide range of topics, all relating to discrimination within the Black community, homophobia, misogyny, etc., etc. Make sure to join our Facebook group, More Than a Game. It's time to tackle racism. Or perhaps visit our website at www.ralphrob.com. If you have questions or comments, email us at ralph at ralphrob.com. I'm Kimberly Ravando Rob, and I am signing out. Signing out. Signing out. Signing out. Signing out.